This is a short podcast topic um, covering immune checkpoint inhibitors in women with GYN cancers. And it's based on a really good article from Guy Nonk in 2020, first author Katie Kernett from the University of Chicago. And she and her co-authors do a great job just summarizing this topic, and we'll review it based on this paper. So first of all, checkpoint inhibitors are anti-cancer drugs, and their primary function is to block activity of PD-1 and PD-L1, which are immune checkpoint proteins that are on surfaces of cells, and they inhibit the program DEF ligand 1 from associating to its receptor, the program cell death protein 1, or PD-1. And this behavior is what suppresses the immune system. And this is what is being harnessed in anti-cancer therapy. Anti-PDL1 drug example would be Dervalumab. Anti-PD1 Avalumab, Atezolizumab, Pembrolizumab, and Nivalumab. So these proteins will bind and dampen the immune response, and so checkpoint inhibitors will block that process, and this helps enhance our body's immune response to a tumor. And so inhibiting these inhibitors is how we are trying to work smarter in cancer therapy. You can use them in parallel. You can use them in combination to target tumor and lymph nodes. Um, it is important to note that pembrolizumab is the only anti-PD-1 FDA-approved checkpoint inhibitor for gynecologic malignancies, pembrolizumab. And it has three key indications. The first is in advanced or recurrent cervical cancer in patients who've had progression of disease on chemotherapy or progression of disease after chemotherapy. They have to be... PDL1 positive on an immunohistochemical test using an FDA approved antibody with a combined positive score or CPS score of greater than or equal to one. And it's important to mention here because it does get asked occasionally that a combined positive score is defined as the percent positive PDL1 cells, all of them, relative to the total number of viable tumor cells. So combined positive score greater than equal to one, which is how many positive PD-L1 cells are seen in the entire. Okay. So first was cervical cancer, recurrent, advanced, progressing on or after chemo. Number two indication for pembrolizumab is not a GYN specific FDA approval. Um, and it's actually based on a 2017 paper in the journal Science by Lee et al., which was a basket trial that looked at deficient mismatch repair and MSI high tumors, but included endometrium um, as its number two most common enrolled um, patient in this trial. And the overall response rate was 53% to pembrolizumab in endometrial cancer patients. The second trial uh, that helped establish FDA approval 
of pembrolizumab was Keynote 158. The data from that included 233 patients with MSI high non-colorectal cancer, among whom there were roughly 50 patients with endometrial cancer, and they showed an overall response rate of 57% in patients with endometrial cancer. So we have two high-impact publications looking at um, multiple different tumor types, including endometrial cancer, showing overall response rates between 53 and 57% that helped establish pembrolizumab in endometrial cancer. About 30% of endometrial cancers generally will have deficient mismatch repair on IHC or will be MSI high using PCR-based testing. And the use of pembrolizumab um, in solid tumors, not specifically endometrial cancer, but that FDA approval, was really indicated for patients with deficient mismatch repair or MSI high tumors who have no decent alternative to treatment. So typically we would use this medicine in endometrial patients who've recurred or progressed after their first-line chemo. And so the authors of Kerna's paper really do suggest, and we do at my institution, um, at primary diagnosis to establish mismatch repair status or MSI status um, to help um, determine pembrolizumab eligibility. Okay, to recap, pembro only FDA approved for GYN malignancy um, with three relevant indications. The first, advanced recurrent cervix progressing on or after chemo, but has to have the combined positive score um, greater than or equal to one, PDL one positive on IHC. Second indication, not GYN specific, but FDA approved for deficient mismatch repair or MSI high tumors with whom no decent alternatives exist, uh, so typically with recurrence or progression of disease after first-line chemo, which we all would advocate, therefore, for MMR and MSI high testing at diagnosis due to overall response rates in the literature between 53 and 57%. The third indication is advanced or recurrent microsatellite-stable endometrial cancer. Patients have to have had at least one prior line of chemo. And it's in combination with lenvatinib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and can be any histology. So I'll say that again. Microsatellite stable endometrial cancer in the advanced recurrence setting after one line of chemo, combo with lenvatinib, any histology. And this is based on Dr. Macker's phase two study that included 38% of patients with serous endometrial cancer didn't exclude carcinosarcoma, did not exclude clear cell, showing impressive response rates with a combination of lenvatinib and pembrolizumab. So based on these three listed approvals that we just reviewed, most women with recurrent endometrial cancer are going to... So talking about dosing and the approved doses... Most common, you're going to see 200 milligrams IV given every three weeks. But as of April of 2020, a new dosing was approved. And this is for 400 milligrams IV every 42 days, which is also okay. When you're using Pembro with lenvatinib, the dosing of lenvatinib is 20 milligrams orally every day, but dose reductions 
um, as we know, are common because of toxicity. It's important for pre-treatment evaluation to include um, baseline and longitudinal assessments of thyroid function, liver function, serum glucose, stool frequency, quality, as these are often the things that you're going to be screening patients for to determine if there's any immune-related toxicity associated with their checkpoint inhibitor. There's also symptoms that you need to review long-term, so always thinking about the GI system, pulmonary, skin slash derm. If patients have low sodium, low blood pressure, you're wanting to think about hypophysitis. If patients express that they are having changes in their vision or have red eye, you want to think about uveitis. And you definitely want to get these labs and do these clinical evaluations before every cycle. So thyroid, liver, function, glucose, stool check, and then GI palm derm symptom review with a high index of suspicion to spot any problems. Some toxicities can be late. There's not great literature to help us with duration of therapy um, using these immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, Lee et al. in that science paper from 2017 stopped at 24 months if patients experienced a complete response. But again, there's no solid data on when to stop uh, treatment. And because toxicities can arrive late, it's important to continue screening after anyone has been exposed to a checkpoint inhibitor. Next topic would be biomarkers, how we can maybe predict susceptibility to checkpoint inhibitors. Um, there's been some uh, research looking at CD8 positive and T-cell abundance, uh, tumor mutation burden, which is defined as more than 10 mutations per megabase. Um, this is now actually a test that's FDA approved in solid tumors. Um, there's also percentage of samples with a high PD-1 gene expression. MSI high status is validated as a predictor of response to pembrolizumab. So tumor mutational burden over 10 mutations per megabase and MSI high PCR-based testing are both the most popular um, tests to predict response. The PDL1 um, testing is also clinically validated for cervical cancer. PDL1 is found on tumor cells, immune cells, epithelial cells, endothelial cells. It's also important to emphasize that PDL1 expression um, and the calculation of the combined positive score, which we talked about earlier, is not perfect. So it's really the immunohistochemical assessment of PDL1 expression on tumor cells and tumor infiltrating cells. But I just mentioned that PDL1 expression can be found on a lot of different cells. And immune cell expression isn't as reproducible. Trials have often used different positive cutoffs. And just as an example, in some studi studies that have used antibodies for PDL1, um, the author 
of this paper quoted the Javelin study, which was phase 1B. Some patients who were PDL1 positive had no response to checkpoint inhibition, and those with PDL1 negative status, they reported a 12% response to checkpoint inhibition. They changed their cutoffs in the study and they still couldn't predict PDL1 status with response. So just something to consider that this is an area that still needs to be worked out and improved. Another important topic when thinking about checkpoint inhibitors is adverse events. The term terminology used is immune-related adverse events or IRAEs. They can impact any organ system. It can be at different intervals, as I mentioned, widely variable, even after patients are done using the medication. We can use the CTCAE grading criteria, which is specific, um, have specific outline for IRAEs. Grade three or higher is considered high-grade immune-related adverse events. And in um, the literature, any grade immune-related adverse event associated with a checkpoint inhibitor, about 87% of patients. Grade three or higher, 29% or a fatal immune-related adverse event, about 1.3%. So roughly 90% of patients will have an immune-related adverse event. About a third will have a high-grade immune-related adverse event, and roughly 1% will have a fatal immune-related adverse event when using a checkpoint inhibitor. Keynote 158 helped us understand the most common immune-related adverse events for pembrolizumab, and that would be thyroid dysfunction, either hypo or hyper, roughly 10%, um, low-grade, typically. Colitis in about 25%, and skin reactions in about a third. There's obviously more toxicity when combining pembrolizumab with lenvatinib. Lenvatinib is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that also includes VEGF inhibition, so you can see hypertension, nausea, GI perforations, and fistula. And the thyroid immune-related adverse events are roughly 50%, all hypothyroid, about a third of patients with skin toxicities. There's been some research in looking for biomarkers for toxicity to help predict which patients will not do well with, with these checkpoint inhibitors, um, but these are mostly melanoma studies. Some examples would be um, cytokine measurements with IL-6, 17, um, C-reactive protein, procalcitonin, but these are all kind of mixed. Neutrophil to lymphocyte ratios, if you see an increased neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, this is, uh, has been seen to be associated with an increased risk of immune-related adverse events. Eosinophilia can be a marker for immune-related dermatitis, but nothing reliably seen and nothing currently in clinical practice. So we don't really have tests um, like I listed for biomarkers for response, predicting response. We do have a couple, tumor mutational burden, for example, but we don't really have reliable clinical use biomarkers for toxicity. Managing adverse events is really important, and there is um, some guide, guidance from ASCO as well as other organizations that have guidelines. But the key is identify it fast so you can minimize impact, but not much data to guide management. But the general rules of thumb here, if you have a grade one immune-related adverse event, 
continue the medication, but monitor that patient really closely. If it's grade two, consider holding the medication and maybe even adding steroids with a uh, short taper, steroids lasting a month to six weeks. And then you can restart the medication when toxicity is um, less than or equal to grade one. If it's a high grade, grade three or higher adverse event, you need to stop the medication, give the patient steroids at a dose of one to two milligrams per kilogram per day, so a much higher dose. Consider hospitalization and even consider ICU level care. The only exception to all of this is if patients have a grade, even a grade one myocarditis, you got to give them steroids because it's serious. If patients fail steroids, there's a few um, suggestions where there is some evidence to support using infliximab, which is a TNF blocker for colitis, pneumonitis, optho side effects. Um, There's other alternatives listed um, that you can certainly look into if patients are steroid refractory to their immune-related adverse events. And the medications listed were cyclophosphamide, cyclosporin, mycophenolate, azathioprine, and IV immunoglobulins. For patients who have GI-related, immune-related adverse events, specifically consider colonoscopy and endoscopy with steroids. And you can add infliximab if ulcers are seen on the scope. Consider um, hormone replacement for endocrinopathies. And definitely use your expert consultants. So endocrine, GI, dermatology can all really help, particularly if they have experience in treating patients with immune-related adverse events. And I think the key is these may be pre-treated patients. So if they come to you with side effects, you need to be thinking if they've been exposed to a checkpoint inhibitor, you really have to be smart and think about Um, whether this could be more of an immune-related adverse event rather than um, a typical clinical symptom that may be unrelated. There's a few just brief comments on patients who may have a pre-existing autoimmune disease. Very limited data because most trials are excluding these patients. Um, But in the studies that are out there, there's about a 50% flare rate in patients who have autoimmune disease who are using checkpoint inhibitors. So about half of your patients will have a flare of their autoimmune condition. So having good rheumatologic support, about 40% of patients will have an immune-related adverse event that's different from their autoimmune disease. So half will flare with their actual autoimmune disease, and about about 40% of patients will have a different immune-related adverse event. You know, flip side, thinking about this, over half half of patients won't have a flare, or immune-related adverse event. Um, And then there's just a suggestion in the literature that patients may have impaired progression-free survival compared to other patients who don't have autoimmune diseases who are using checkpoint inhibitors. So all just sort of early early considerations, not not things that have really established um, data in the literature. How we assess response is using immune-related resist or IR resist. If you're concerned your patient has progression and they're on an immune checkpoint inhibitor, it is recommended to do confirmatory imaging a month to two months later because there is this concern for something called pseudo-progression. 
um, which has been seen in some of the initial studies with checkpoint inhibitors. We don't have a defined percentage in gynecologic cancers um, in patients using checkpoint inhibitors for pseudoprogression, so you can't really quote this um, as high or low um, in our patient population, but it is something you want to consider. So re-imaging one to two months after um, what you think might be pseudoprogression is very reasonable. We'll wrap it up by talking about resistance to checkpoint inhibitors, and there's two different ways to think about this. The first would be primary resistance to a checkpoint inhibitor, so they just, patients just don't respond. And another would be acquired resistance, where patients may respond initially but then develop resistance. Uh, primary resistance is where a tumor oncogene may mediate immune escape and promote non-T-cell inflamed phenotypes. So this is tumor oncogene mediated escape from the immune, the immune response. Um, and this is what we think is happening, particularly in like ovarian cancer um, that are using monotherapy checkpoint inhibitors where response rates are 10 to 15%, much lower than what we see in um, endometrial cancer in the studies available. Um, there's been studies that show less than 20% of high-grade serous ovarian cancers have a high tumor mutational burden or even a T-cell inflamed gene expression profile, so may not be primed to respond to checkpoint inhibitors. There have been improved response rates if you add um, ipilimumab with nivolumab, so dual checkpoint inhibitors versus nevo alone. Um, and because some patients with ovarian cancer are responders, and some of these are durable, it's really important for future research that we can identify who these responders are. Um, other considerations might be that tumor cells are just simply resistant um, to checkpoint inhibitors. Maybe they have no antigenic mutations. Maybe they don't have infiltrating antigens like T cells. Maybe they don't have interferon gamma signaling. Um, because of all of these things, you know, if they had antigenic mutations or infiltrating um, engine like T-cells or interferon gamma signaling, this could promote T-cell inflammation, which may prime the cell to respond to checkpoint inhibition. Acquired resistance, so respond but then don't. There's some um, thinking that this could be due to downregulation of neoantigens that tumors initially are sensitive to the checkpoint inhibitor, but this impairs sensitivity to the drug. Tumors can acquire tumor oncogenes. The beta-catenin pathway, uh, P10 loss, can all be seen in recurrent tumors. The cell may actually acquire defects in its machinery that are associated with presenting antigens. So HLA allele loss, mutations in beta-2 microglobulin, all can help the cell escape the immune ramp-up. And again, if you lose interferon gamma, um, that can also develop resistance in the cell, or tumor-associated macrophages can remove tr the... Um, the medication from the T-cell surface and help evade um, the cell from responding. Future directions for checkpoint inhibitors, we have actually several trials out right now. 
In the first line, there's GY018, which is pembrolizumab maintenance in endometrial cancer. It's currently enrolling. That's GY018. In cervix and endometrium, there's GY020 and GY3047 that are looking at chemoradiation plus pembrolizumab, followed by maintenance pembrolizumab as one strategy. And then in the recurrent setting in platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer patients, GY021, tremulimumab, and PARP inhibitors as a uh, rational combination. So things on the horizon, um, primarily for checkpoint inhibitors, it's looking at pembrolizumab in these uh, newer trials.